Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head and Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. So obviously today I'm not talking about films. I'm doing a special recap episode of episodes three and four of the HBO limited series Sharp Objects. I love this show. I I previously talked about episodes one and two with you, and now I'm doing episodes three and four. I talk about why I think crime fiction and crime television shows that are written by women and or center women can actually be really important spaces for women to talk about their lived experiences in the world. I talk about everything that's happened in the last few episodes about the mother-daughter relationship in Sharp Objects and why I think it's really interesting and, and unsettling, obviously. I talk about how the show looks at female sexuality, how it looks at mental illness and memory and the damage that the past can do to us and how we try to cope with that and how we try to survive the trauma that we've experienced. So I have a lot packed into this episode. It's personal, it's emotional, it's everything that you have come to expect from Her Head and Films, but it's just about this limited um, television series. And I really have enjoyed bringing you these recap episodes, and I hope that you enjoy them too. Her Head and Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and access rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash herheadandfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. I'd like to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons David, Juan, Iris, Teal, J.D., Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much. Patrons make the podcast possible, and I'm so grateful for all of you. If financial support is not an option, and I do understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. You can tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you can send me an encouraging message. I'm on Facebook at Her Head and Films. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Her Head and Films and I'll pop up. And you can see all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So let's talk about sharp objects. Sharp Objects continues to be a really emotional series for me. I've never done television recaps for this podcast because I mainly focus on film, but I also like having the freedom to veer into other directions. And nowadays, for me, television has become very cinematic. And you see people from film 
getting much more involved in television. There used to be this time when the two of them were very separate. If you did films, then you did films. If you did television, you did television. And it was very rare for a film star to do television. Well, now that doesn't matter. You know, Amy Adams is primarily known as a movie star, but she's doing television. All kinds of film stars are doing television. And I think that these series are also filling a gap a hole that has opened up in cinema, or at least in mainstream Hollywood cinema right now in America, where so many of the films at your local theater, at least for me, I live in a rural area in the South, and the closest movie theater to me is just showing the blockbusters. You know, it's just showing the action films or the science fiction films or the superhero films. And this is not a dig at anybody who enjoys those movies. Um, There's a very important reason why my podcast is not critical and it's not negative. I do not talk about films that I don't like. I'm not interested in, in telling you what I hate about a film. I'm not interested in that. And on social media, I'm not interested in attacking films or attacking people who like certain films. I think the criticism can get quite personal at times, um, where we almost take, take a person's film taste and turn it into who they are as a person, or who, what their morality is like, and that bothers me. I'm, I'm not a negative person, so I'm not here to attack people who like superhero films. But that's not my taste in films. That's not what I want to see personally. And that's fine if you do. And you can love it all. You can love a really great art house film. And then you can love movies that are action. And I have my own genres that are not looked on favorably. I love TV movies, for instance. Especially the television movies that were made in the 1990s. Sort of your movie of the week. The Woman in Jeopardy. Um, I like those films a great deal, and I think they have something to say about sexism and misogyny and violence against women, and I think they make that violence visible. So as flawed and problematic as that genre is, I guess you could say, for me, it's it has possibilities, and I like it, and I do watch films that are not considered art house and not considered important or whatever. But the problem that has started in mainstream cinema, especially in America and with Hollywood, is there's such an absence of women, such an absence of of women's voices, whether it's as producer or writer or director. It's a major problem. And when you talk about people of color, women of color, it's even worse. Those numbers get even worse. So what's really great about Sharp Objects, even though it's directed by a man, by Jean-Marc Vallée, it's often written by women. There's There are producers involved who are women, Marty Noxon, um, Gillian Flynn, so uh, Amy Adams. And I just watched an interview with Amy Adams and Chris Messina on The View. I don't normally watch The View that much. 
but when I saw that Amy Adams was on, I, I wanted to see it. And she talked about how she really enjoyed being an executive producer on the show because she got to impact people's work environments. Because we know with the Me Too movement and we know with the Time's Up that we're looking more critically at film sets and television sets and how are women being treated in the workplace as films are being created and television shows are being made at every level. And new allegations have just come out about Les Moonves and women are speaking up about being sexually harassed by him. And what's important about that article that was written by Ronan Farrow, who's been a really central um, writer in a lot of these exposés about powerful men who are abusing their power and harming women and harming other men at times. What is important um you know, what is important about his article is not just that it's about Les Moonves, but it's about exposing a culture, a toxic and misogynistic culture at CBS that runs through almost every division of the company, whether it's 60 Minutes or different divisions where women have experienced harassment. And it speaks to how often the person at the very top is often the one who it doesn't stop with them, that it often bleeds into other areas of, of a company, you know, and into different parts of it. So that's a really important article that I just read in the New Yorker about, um, those allegations coming out. And I read also, um, that Amy Adams had a, an experience where somebody was playing her body double and, um, that day it was Amy instead of the body double and that somebody came up behind Amy and I could be telling the story incorrectly um I read it a while back and they grabbed her or they did something to Amy Adams thinking that she was the body double but of course she wasn't and it made Amy think how are women being treated on this set when I'm not around and so I really love that when I saw her interview with The View that she brought that up that as an executive producer, she liked having control and she liked having a say in the work environment. And I just love Amy Adams for that. And I think we do need more women in those positions of power. Women who other women can go to if something has happened and they'll be listened to and something will be done about it. And I also got to thinking recently, and I was on Twitter tweeting about it a little bit, I really wish there was a feminist television channel or a feminist streaming channel or streaming service. And when I say feminist, I don't just mean in the content, you know, content that centers women and non-binary people. And when I say women, I include trans women and, and women of color in that definition for me. You know, stories that would spotlight those experiences, center queer uh, lives and the lives of immigrants and the poor and the working class and the disabled. And, you know, this is what I would imagine for a feminist television channel. And in that channel or streaming service, you would get like a total alternative to what we see in the mainstream. Like we, you would have a news division and it wouldn't necessarily, it's not about being biased or having an agenda, 
But when you get the news through ABC or CBS, there's a bias there. There's an agenda there. You're not getting told everything. And so when I think of giving the news through a feminist lens, I think of one that takes into account gender, race, sexuality, um, you know, capitalism, colonialism, you know, things that we just don't often hear, you know, that would be my conceptualization of a, a feminist TV channel or a feminist streaming service, where it would center women's stories and contributions. And, and of course, you know, there would be a film division and, you know, it would not just show films that have already been made, but fund films, fund women writers, producers, directors, you know, just everything, you know, it would just completely reconceptualize the world and art and, but not just that, not just in the art part or the entertainment or the creative content that gets made on the channel or the service, but it would also be about how the people who work there are treated. Like, how can we rethink work environments? How can we reconceptualize the interactions between men and women and, and, and reconceptualize power and what that and and get rid of power like there doesn't need to necessarily be a CEO but a place where everybody's accountable where it's like a communal environment maybe and decisions are made in a different way and everything would be different about it I mean I just think that would be fascinating I feel like feminism we have to I mean real radical intersectional feminism has to give alternatives it's we have to come up with new ideas and reconceptualize the world and give people alternatives and that's been the hard part I think for so long um but it was just something I was thinking about recently and something else I want to talk about before I get into my recap I've become really obsessed with crime fiction recently like mysteries but especially ones that are either written by women or focus on women in their pages, you know, and in the stories. And I know there's like, there's sort of these conversations happening about it, about crime fiction that focuses on women or focuses on, on dead women, on dead white women. And I talked about this a a little bit in my previous episode uh, about sharp objects But since that episode, I've just really gotten into this genre, and I've read a few books. I read Amy Malloy's book, The Perfect Mother. Um, I'm reading a book called Baby Teeth right now, and I also read A.J. Finn's book, The Woman in the Window, which is excellent. I really liked it. And um, I don't know. I've just been thinking more and more about the possibilities of the genre, why I really love that it's becoming more popular you know, Megan Abbott recently, there's been so many profiles of her because she has a new book out and she's written crime fiction books for quite a few years. I actually read her book, The Fever, um, a few years ago when it came out, but I haven't read any of her books since then and I haven't read her new one, but I think she's a really fascinating person and she's become really popular and Gillian Flynn is another one. I've read Gone Girl and I did see the the film and then of course Paula Hawkins with the girl on the train I read that and I saw the movie I didn't quite like the movie as much but I loved Emily Blunt in it but what I was thinking about is that I absolutely get the pe- the problems people have with it 
I absolutely understand some of the criticisms, but I don't see these stories in that way. Just like I don't interpret the 1990s TV movies, the woman in jeopardy thing in a negative way. For me, those films explored violence against women and they centered it and they, and they often showed the women, not just as victims, but as women who fought back against the violence that they went through, whether it was a woman being raped and taking her rapist to court or fighting back against that, or just different things like that, different films that you'll see. And so I see these crime fiction books and the growing popularity of them in the mainstream and in our culture, I see them as a space. um, I think crime fiction and crime shows too, the ones that center women, the ones that are about women's lives, and often the ones that are written by women too, I feel like they give us a space to talk about the darker realities of women's lives. You know, and a lot of a lot of shows don't really want to talk about these things, but these shows do, and these books do. They talk about violence against women. They talk about trauma. They talk about fa- about pain, whether it be physical or mental. Um, talk about women's bodies and the the issues that women can have. For instance, baby teeth, which I'm reading right now by Zoji Stage. I don't know if I'm saying that properly. Um, The main character is a woman who has a child who's basically like a psychopath. It's a very violent child. And the mother herself struggles with Crohn's disease. And, And she struggles with physical pain and with disability and illness and with her body. And that's not something that you will see in other types of fiction. Do I love my Sylvia Plath and my Virginia Woolf and my Marguerite Dura and all my serious literature that I read? Absolutely. I read really serious literature. I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, I consider myself more of like a literary fiction person. But that doesn't mean that I'm above crime fiction or mystery fiction. And I think that these books speak to women's experiences right now in an urgent way and in an important way. And when I read them, I feel a connection to them. And these books talk about mental illness as well. You know, Sharp Objects is a perfect example. You know, Camille Preaker is struggling with self-harm, with depression, obviously, with alcoholism. And these are just not topics that will normally get talked about in other kinds of books. Um, in A.J. Finn's The Woman in the Window, which I recently read and loved, the main character has agoraphobia and she is struggling with trauma. You know, she's not able to leave her house. And that's something I myself deal with. I've been through grief. I've had trouble leaving the house. Agoraphobia is something that's very much a part of my life and has been since my father died in 2006. I went through a lot of trauma surrounding his death and the death of other people in my life in a really compressed space of time. Within a few years, several people in my life died and I was very young. I was a teenager and it made my mental illness worse. It made my depression and my anxiety worse. And 12 years later, I still struggle with that. Uh, 
The past is always very present for me, just like it is for Camille Preaker. And what I love about Sharp Objects as a TV show is that it gives me a space through these recap episodes to talk about these things, to talk about my own personal experiences and what I think a lot of other women go through who are not allowed to speak about it. As women, we're supposed to try to be perfect and beautiful and quiet and polite And I think Megan Abbott in an interview said that she likes the crime fiction genre. She likes to write her books because she wants to explore female anger. She wants to explore female violence, you know, and that crime fiction and mystery fiction gives us a way to do that, that women feel very intense emotions that we're often not allowed to show. We're not allowed to unravel. We're not allowed to break down. We're not allowed to be that way. You know, we're supposed to have perfect bodies and perfect lives and be beautiful and, you know, and be all these things and be submissive. And we're not supposed to be angry. We're not supposed to speak out about the men who hurt us, the men who sexually harass us, Just this week, there was this recording that was released. It was in Paris of this woman who was being sexually harassed by a man on the street. I guess he said something to her and she spoke back to him. I'm not exactly sure what she said to him, but a CCTV camera captured it. And she said something like, leave me alone. Stop harassing me. And he walked over to her and punched her in the face. And it's on this video and it's visceral and it's just startling and horrific to look at. That here is a woman just walking down the street and because she dared to say something back to this man, he thought he had the right to go and hit her. This is the kind of world that women live in. And we need spaces where we can talk about it, where we can talk about this kind of violence And these kinds of difficulties, you know, not just what people have done to us, but what's going on inside of ourselves, mental illness, self-harm, all of those things. And I think crime fiction, mystery fiction gives us a way to do that. And I know that Sharp Objects, it's about dead girls. It's about two dead white girls, but it's also about Camille. And so for me, the series um, subverts that a little bit where it's not just about the murders. It's not just about the detective solving the crime. That's not what this show is about. It is about a traumatized woman, you know, returning to a space, returning to her hometown, um, returning back to a relationship with her mother that's very toxic and trying to face those demons and look at those demons and um, what those experiences have done to her. And there have been a lot of criticisms of the genre, as I said, you know, the dead white girls and dead girls and, you know, um, it's about seeing women in pain. It's about enjoying seeing women in pain. And I do not agree with that. I don't agree with it it's fine if that's what you think if you're listening to this recap episode I wouldn't think that you believe that but when I watch those old 1990s tv movies about violence against women when I watch sharp objects or when I read crime fiction about women about women who 
have disappeared or been killed. It is not about me loving to see women in pain. It's about seeing my own pain in another woman and connecting to that. That's what it's about. So I just wanted to talk about that for a few moments. So I'm going to talk about episode three. This is really the main episode I'm going to focus on. I didn't feel like quite as much was happening in episode four, but episode three called Fix has a lot going on in it. And it's actually a really, it's a powerful episode. And I think it, it illuminates a part of Camille's life that up to this point we haven't known a lot about and that is her being in the psychiatric hospital and we can tell that it's been really recently because she looks kind of the same at first I was a little confused and thought maybe she was checking in while she was in wind gap I don't know I got kind of confused as I always do with this show between what is the present and what is the past And I talked about that in more detail in my previous recap episode. And my mom, I watch this show with my mom. Every um, Monday or Tuesday we watch the episode. We record it on HBO because we can't stay up late. We're like, I mean, she's always going to bed early and I'm not going to watch the show without her. So we just record it and then we watch it the next day or Tuesday. And my mom actually commented, she was like, you know how it goes back and forth. That's what she said. Like she said it in this really, uh, you know, exhausted way. Because that's what the show does. It's always playing with time. It's always destabilizing our sense of time and where we are. You know, are we in the present? Are we in the past? But a really important part is how Camille remembers being in the psychiatric hospital. And we see her checking in to the hospital. And, um she has a roommate there named Alice. And so we get to see a bit of their relationship in this episode. And we get to see Camille um, sort of connecting to another person in a way that I don't think we've seen up to then. Camille is a really solitary and lonely person throughout this series. She doesn't have any kind of real connection with her mother. She doesn't have a connection with Emma her younger sister, even though I think to some extent Emma wants to connect to her or seems to be trying to connect to her at times. But um, there are some very telling scenes um, in the psychiatric hospital or the mental hospital, I guess you could call it. And um, her roommate Alice is able to wear a skirt, whereas Camille can't. Camille is so covered in the scars that she's put on her body um, because she's cut herself, but she's also carved words onto her skin. And we're not quite sure yet what those words mean or how that happened. Um, I've not read the book, and I've been really honest about that. I'm just going by the series. And for me, I have to choose sometimes. If I'm going to watch a series, then I'm going to watch the series. I'm not going to read the book while I'm watching the series. I'm just not going to do that. It confuses me. Characters are different. Plot points are different. So sometimes in life, you have to choose one or the other. And there are plenty of movies I've watched and series that I've watched, and I've never gone back and read the book. Because for me, the series or the film was so powerful 
that I wanted it to live in my mind in that way. And then there's the opposite where I've read a book that has really impacted me and moved me. And I will not watch the film unless unless I think there's a really good director behind it. Sort of like Call Me By Your Name. I read the book first. And for anybody listening to this who's interested in Call Me By Your Name, I would absolutely recommend reading the book first. I think it makes a huge, huge difference because I've seen reactions to the Call Me By Your Name film that have really startled me and unsettled me um, and that I don't fully understand because I'm coming from a place where I read the book first. So if any of you are out there who have not read Call Me By Your Name, read the book and then watch the film. Both are beautiful and both are works of art in their own way for me. But, um... So Camille is covered in these scars and she throughout the series is wearing long sleeves. She's wearing pants. And I also meant to mention that on that interview that Amy Adams did on The View, they talked about how for her to put on the prosthetics of the scars that she said it took like three to four hours, which really surprised me. Like, I I could not believe that, that it took three to four hours for them to put those scars on her body. But that's what she said. Um, Her and Alice really connect through music. There's this really beautiful scene of them sort of laying in bed together, listening to music. And they share the earbuds between um, themselves. You know, Camille will have one in her ear and then Alice will have one... um, in hers and they really connect through listening to Led Zeppelin and I love that Led Zeppelin is is woven throughout this series because I myself love Led Zeppelin there's such a um there's a pain to that music but there's also an incredible um power and intensity to that early Led Zeppelin music for me like it's sexual it's um I don't know how to put it into words, but it's like feverish almost. Robert Plant's voice is so full of aching and longing and heartache. And sometimes he just moans on those songs and, um, and the rhythm and the, and the intensity of those songs just reach into your body. And I remember when I was younger, just absolutely falling in love with Led Zeppelin. And, um, I had like their greatest hits or something and, my dad actually gave me their greatest hits and um because he really liked classic rock that was one of my dad's favorite things his big passion in life was music and he liked a lot of classic rock but it's still hard for me to listen to the music that he listened to I don't listen to Led Zeppelin often because it just brings back a lot of memories for me because he also loved them a great deal but I do love hearing it in this series and um, I think the intensity of it and, and the the sensuality of it just perfectly matches this series. I felt like in this episode, there was also more of a, a look at Adora and Camille's relationship. Adora is Camille's mother, played by Patricia Clarkson. And um, there are several things that Adora says in this episode that are just so shocking for a mother to say to her daughter and she says at one time she's talking to Emma uh Camille's younger sister and she tells Emma that Camille is someone to not to be admired 
And she also says to Camille at one time, quote, you cause so much hurt, unquote. And she seems to really hate Camille and to see her as a failure. She sees Camille as a failure, I think. And, um, and later on in episode four, the one that's called Ripe, um, there is this conversation a bit between Camille and Adora sort of at the end of the episode where Adora says that she thought Camille would save her. Camille was her firstborn and she thought that she would save her. She thought that Camille would love her, but she said that Camille just disobeyed all the time and she made a fool of Adora. And so this is just a really complicated doesn't even explain it it's interesting because after after this particular episode episode three I watched Ingmar Bergman's film Autumn Sonata and I did it for the podcast it's it yeah I have an episode about Autumn Sonata and I'll put a link to it in the show description um, or in the show notes in the description of the episode if you want to listen to it And that film is about a very tormented and toxic relationship between a mother and daughter. And so when I got to thinking about doing this recap episode, I thought about Autumn Sonata and how it shows such a painful relationship between a mother and daughter, really about a mother and daughter who cannot love each other. A mother who's not really capable of accepting her daughter or loving her daughter. And so I thought it was a really interesting coincidence that I'm watching Sharp Objects. And then I'm also watching Autumn Sonata. Um, It's such a devastating film. But I definitely recommend it. I think if you're a fan of Sharp Objects. And if this mother-daughter relationship in the show is compelling to you or if you're interested in another film that also explores a very toxic mother-daughter relationship then Autumn Sonata would be the film for you it's just I can't believe the things that Adora says to Camille but at the same time I don't know the full backstory I don't know what's happened between these two women I don't know what is going on but there is this sense that Camille is seen as an utter failure in the eyes of Adora and that she has tried very hard with Emma to make Emma better, you know, to raise Emma better. And she sees Camille as something very dangerous to Emma, as something threatening, as a bad influence on Emma. But of course, the irony is that when you see Emma away from Adora, when you see her roller skating or whatever, um, when you see her with her friends, when you see her interacting with Camille, Emma is much more threatening and much more dangerous in a lot of ways. And there is this scene where she confronts Camille and the Christmas scene, a detective character, and um, because they're talking and then and Emma just goes crazy, the things that she's saying. And there's something very dark and dangerous about her. And, of course, she covers it up. And and Adora doesn't see that. Adora only sees the badness or the darkness in Camille. 
she doesn't see it in in Emma. So at the end of this episode, we see Camille goes to get some music for Alice. She's back at the psychiatric hospital. She's remembering that experience. And they listen to music for a little while. And then Camille leaves the room. And then she returns. And Alice has committed suicide. She's drank um, like drain cleaner or something like that. And um, Camille is just so overwhelmed by the experience that she grabs this screw in the toilet um, that's part of the toilet commode. And she starts to... um, to cut herself with it to jab herself and there's all this blood and it's this whole sequence at the end of the this episode of episode three was so emotional for me like it's been a a week since I saw it over a week and it just flashes in my mind sometimes the emotion and the intensity of it this show just reaches you somewhere like I've I've not encountered a show like this in a really long time um it it just the the intensity of it the the feelings that it makes me feel um but that whole sequence Camille is like driving in the night and she's remembering this she's remembering what happened and and remembering this girl Alice that it seemed to me like she really connected to her and she felt something for her. And then to see her die, to see her kill herself was completely um, gutting uh, for Camille and completely devastating to her. And she has to go and she has to harm herself in order to cope with that pain. And just Camille driving in the night, remembering She's always remembering, you know, seeing Alice on the floor, seeing herself jab her arms with the screw, the way the pain wills, the unbearable pain that we bear. That was something that I wrote down, the unbearable pain that we bear. And that's what that scene made me feel, you know, was the way the pain wells up inside of us and how it's just always there. It might be under the surface. It might be quelled. It might be subdued. It might be something that we can control at times and that we can tamp down, but it always finds a way to the surface. It always does. It always finds a way out of us. In moments of intense emotion and moments when we just come apart or we look for some kind of comfort or we look for some kind of way to to medicate ourselves or or to cope with it, you know. And, you know, I was thinking about how I didn't think that I harmed myself. I mean, I've said in, in the previous episode, I think, or... I don't know. I might have mentioned it, but I'm not a self-harm person. You know, I haven't cut myself. I haven't done anything like that. But I got to thinking that maybe I really harm myself in other ways. That I harm myself in just different ways that I don't know if I'm comfortable talking about fully. Um... 
in the ways that I sort of neglect myself, how I don't take care of myself, how I just feel worthless and I feel um, damaged and broken and I don't think highly of myself. I don't think much of myself. And so I don't really take care of myself the way I probably should. I don't eat the right foods. I don't, you know, take care of my body the way that I should. And um, because I've just always felt like I didn't have any kind of value as a person. And I just felt so worthless. And um, I still feel that way. And I still struggle with that. I still have days where it's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to just function. It's hard to cope and to survive. And I feel a lot of shame about that. And I don't think the shame will ever go away. And so I do think all of us maybe are harming ourselves in ways that can't be seen. That maybe we're not cutting ourselves the way Camille does. But we're hurting ourselves in other ways. By doing drugs. By drinking alcohol. By eating too much or not eating enough. Um, by not taking care of ourselves the way we probably should. And it may just be an unconscious thing, but maybe there's something in us that thinks that we're not worth caring for, you know, that we're not worth that. And, um, I kind of came to that realization recently that maybe, maybe I unconsciously or inadvertently hurt myself in other ways, I don't know. I mean, maybe I do. But I do remember when I was younger being sort of fascinated by knives and razor blades. And I remember sometimes I would sort of lightly um, slash them across my finger or my wrist. Not enough to bring any kind of blood or anything. But they fascinated me and they interested me for some reason. I never went as far as, you know, what Camille did or to bring up blood or to hurt myself. But I was thinking about that recently. I was thinking about memories I had of touching these blades and sort of being scared of them, but being um, captivated by them at the same time, the way that you could break the skin and you could hurt yourself in that way. And But I'm always afraid of pain. So I, I, I was never the kind of person that could do that that could cut themselves because I was just so scared of pain I've always been scared of physical pain um this series just makes you think about so many things and it allows this space as I said earlier to talk about mental illness to talk about self-harm to talk about violence and um and and all of these things and anger You know, I think there's anger in Camille, too, about her relationship with her mother and the way her mother has acted and treated her. So in episode four, it's called Ripe. And like I said, not as much happens in this episode. Um, I just watched it today before recording this. And um, there's just not a ton that happens. Um, But that's what I like about the show. I like that. Not every episode is is about being suspenseful or, or like this show is the opposite of suspenseful. I don't see this show as like a thriller. I don't see it as like your traditional 
suspense or mystery show and I was talking about it with my mom this is not about well who are the suspects and who killed Natalie and Anne and you do care about it you do and you see what their deaths have done to other people and to their mothers and their families and different things like that um it's not like their deaths don't matter but the show is obviously so much about Camille and Camille's relationship with her mother and um but this episode makes us think that perhaps the murders or what happened to these girls is much closer to Camille's life than maybe we realized before um because at the end of it Camille learns that the two victims Natalie and Anne were good friends and they were also friends with Emma, Camille's sister. And so you can tell when Camille learns that, that she's startled by it and that she's frightened by it. And um, she sort of goes searching for Emma. And that's the way the episode ends. Um, but there is, there's a little bit of a th- suspense aspect to it because um, Anne's brother no natalie's brother sorry natalie's brother is suspected of possibly being the killer there's you know town gossip and and all of that and a lot of people find natalie's brother really suspicious so there is a suspect in that sense and there is the christmas scene character the detective and amy adams um camille preaker sorry Camille sort of connects to him a little bit more. Christmas Christmas Cena plays Detective Richard Willis. So Camille definitely starts to get a little bit closer to Detective Willis in this episode, I would definitely say. And um, her and Willis are walking in the woods. Camille's sort of showing him around Wind Gap giving him a sense of, well, these are the places where kids hang out. These are the things that kids do in the woods. And Camille herself um, has memories of when she was younger. And she's shown in this cheerleading outfit. And we see her in the woods at times. And we see boys around her. And we get this feeling that something bad probably really happened to Camille in the woods and that something bad has probably happened to a lot of different girls in the woods in Wind Gap. And it's a reminder, I think, of the violence that women encounter and the sexual violence that they go through. Um, And Camille says a really important thing, I think, when she talks about how if you're a girl in Wind Cap in Wind Gap, if you're a woman in Wind Gap, if you don't conform the way that you're expected to conform, that you get labeled in a certain way. And you get labeled as a slut, you know, if you have sex with too many men or whatever. There's always these labels there for the women who don't conform. And isn't that true in our world today? Even now female sexuality is um, not acceptable and women are not allowed to be sexual they're not allowed to have desires they're not allowed to act on that desire um, and that's still a really big problem and something that a lot of girls deal with and struggle with 
and um, they end up at this shed where Camille herself had been to when she was young, and it's this creepy, creepy shed. It has porn, pornographic pictures on it, like really graphic porn of men having sex with women, and you know, it's just really intense and um, and disturbing, honestly, to think of you know teenage girls in this shed looking at these images and what those images say to them and how they might make them feel and um that is also where natalie and Anne spend a lot of time and so detective willis thinks that it's possible they they were killed there that that the person who killed them may have known about that shed may have known about this secluded area where they used to go and there's also this really intense sex scene which really caught me off guard i was not expecting this at all but i actually really loved it and i want to talk about it even though i'll try not to be too explicit but i think this scene is really interesting she camille takes the initiative she is the one who initiates the contact and she takes detective willis's hand and puts it in her pants you know to basically i guess finger her would be the term um and as he's fingering her and bringing her to a climax she has all these images flashing through her head like blood natalie's toothless face when camille found her because natalie has no teeth they were ripped out and there's blood in her mouth and just all these just um at times graphic or violent images are flashing on the screen you know flashing through camille's head as she is climaxing um with detective willis and so what i liked about this scene even though it's sort of disturbing that she's thinking of these things although i think these things are sort of haunting her and that the climax is like an escape from it or an or a relief um from all of this death and and horror and destruction that she has witnessed over the last few days like sexuality can be um i think a profound part of ourselves that sexual desires sexual release orgasm can be um really cathartic and can be a way to release a lot of pent-up emotion you know that is inside and um so i found this scene to be profoundly emotional in that way like this is a release for camille um through this moment of sexual pleasure and i obviously love the gender dynamics of it and the power dynamics of it that in so many scenes on television shows and in films the sex scenes are initiated by the man and they're dominated by the man and by penetration by you know the man um penetrating the woman and instead this is like camille taking charge of the situation and camille centering her own pleasure that instead of the man getting the pleasure she is you know she's having the orgasm and he is stimulating her body and stimulating um her clitoris obviously 
And um, it's so weird to say these words, but why should it be weird to talk about sex or to talk about sexuality in this way, in a way that centers a woman's pleasure and a woman's body and a woman's experience? It shouldn't be uncomfortable. Um, I, I think it's actually really important. I think it's really radical. I think it's needed and necessary to get away from this idea of sex just being about a a man putting his penis inside a woman. That there are other ways, and we even know that that is that most women do not have an orgasm through vaginal penetration alone. That there has to be stimulation of the clitoris. That without that stimulation of the clitoris, a woman cannot have an orgasm. And so all we see in films and television is a woman having a vaginal orgasm. And it's not reality. It's not real. And it completely disregards and dismisses female pleasure. It absolutely is disrespectful to women to me. Not to mention it's a lie. And so I absolutely loved the scene. I was like, yes, you know, it was a complete affirmation of a woman's pleasure. Like, I just loved it. And I would love to see more sex scenes like this. I really would. I would love to see more sex scenes that were not just about a man getting off, but about a woman being given pleasure too. And her wants and her desires being taken into account and her being able to take control and say, this is what I like. This is what I want. So I know I kind of got graphic there and I went on a little bit and I feel uncomfortable talking about sex in general, but I actually just think it's, it's a feminist thing. I think it's a feminist issue. I think female pleasure is a feminist issue. A woman's pleasure is, and we don't talk about it enough. That's just what I think. And I loved this scene of Camille saying, yeah, I'm taking control. This is what I want. This is what you're going to do. And he did it. And I love that even more. And, um, but it was a very powerful scene because it was like, I think it was like a moment of release for Camille because she has seen so much horror and so much violence and, there's not a lot of laughs in this series. This series is heavy, it's dark, it's intense. And so, yeah, it was nice to see Camille getting a little bit of pleasure there for a moment. Um, and in that interview for The View, um, Amy Adams and Chris Messina, and I also have to say Chris Messina is so cute and so adorable and... I was waiting for a love scene between him and Amy Adams. I was ready. (laughs) I was like, we better get a love scene between these two. And my mom, as we were watching, because this is how my mom is, she put me on the spot and she was like, if you had to choose between Chris Messina and Mark Ruffalo, which one would you choose? And I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to say because... I find both of them very, very attractive. I don't know. I'm sort of more in a Christmas Cena mood right now because of sharp objects. Um, so I guess I would choose him, but I can't believe my mom wanted to make me choose. It's impossible, right? 
Um, but on the interview with The View, Amy Adams said that sometimes they would bring in things to make them laugh on the set. Like, so she even talked about a fart machine, which I thought was really funny. She said that when she was working with Paul Thomas Anderson on The Master, which is a good film. I've actually seen it. Um, that Paul Thomas Anderson loved bringing in a fart machine just to make people laugh. And, you know, they talked about how when you're doing that kind of material, you need relief. You need like a lightness. Um, you need to laugh in between takes and things like that because it can get really intense. So as I said with this episode, there is an exchange between Adora and Camille when Camille comes home and um, Adora talks about how she thought Camille as her firstborn would save her and that Camille would love her and that instead Camille just made a fool of her. So there's there's almost like a hatred in Adora for Camille and we're not quite sure where it comes from at this point. I mean, I wouldn't say it's ever justified to hate your child unless maybe your child is just really out of control. And I mean, even then, you know, I think it's hard for most people to imagine that you could ever hate your child. But Adora just has such animosity towards Camille. And we don't totally understand everything that's gone on in their relationship I mean, so what if Camille was a rebellious teenager? A lot of teenagers are rebellious. What is it that Adora is so upset about? And I find myself wondering that. What what has Camille done? Has Camille done anything at all? Um, or is this just how Adora is? And she hates Camille. And um, also throughout the episode, we saw Adora in bed a lot and we also saw Camille thinking back to the time after her younger sister Marion died when she was a teenager and seeing her mom in bed a lot seeing her mom struggling to function and how she was really absent in Camille's life um, for the most part because she was so grief-stricken and so I think we also see what the death of a child can do to a family how it is this pain and this unhealable wound that can completely destroy a family and tear it apart that you know this this woman has lost her child and even though she has another child that she needs to take care of she's just so consumed by that grief and she's so shattered that she's not able to be the kind of mother that she would have been otherwise if her other child had not died. So I guess there is a bit of sympathy for Adora there, that she did lose a child. She she has struggled with grief, but it's hard to stomach some of the things that she's saying to Camille. And, and what's happened in their relationship. I'm hoping that as the episodes go on, and of course I'll bring you more recap episodes, um, that we'll get a better understanding of this relationship and what has happened here. Um, but Adora has done profound damage to Camille. And Camille is still trying to come to terms with her childhood. Camille's in her 30s. 
you can tell. And this is also another way that Sharp Objects sort of connects to Ingmar Bergman's Autumn Sonata, because that film is also about the Liv Ullman character. Um, she is the daughter, and then Ingrid Bergman plays the mother. It's about Liv Ullman trying to come to terms with, with her mother, but also thinking, oh, I'm an adult. I can handle this. You know, I'm an adult. I should be able to get over this, to get over the pain of my childhood. And instead, she finds that the damage that is done to us in childhood is, for the most part, permanent that it's not something you can get over. It's not something that just because you turn 30 or you're an adult that you can necessarily cope with any differently than when you were younger. And um, that what happens to us in our childhoods absolutely matters and that it can wound us and scar us for life. Um, and also sh the pain, the the part of the pain in that film is not being loved the way that we need to be loved by the people in our lives, the people who should love us, whether it's a mother, a father, whatever. But in this context, it's the mother not being able to love the daughter the way that she needs. And I see that in Camille and Adora. I see this damage done to Camille by her mother that she's struggling with, that she's trying to return to wind gap. She's trying to face these demons, to face the past. But I get the sense that she's being pulled under even more, that she's drowning even deeper into it. And um, she can't get out of it. It's like quicksand. Because for Camille, the, the, press, the past is always present. She's always thinking about it. When she goes into the house, she has flashbacks. When she sees Adora doing something, she has flashbacks. And what's even more painful, I think, at times is to see Emma and Adora together because there's a, a short scene in, in the this episode, in the fourth episode, where Emma and Adora are dancing in the kitchen and there's this lightness about their relationship and... Um, you get the sense that Camille never had that with Adora. That Camille and Adora were never dancing in the kitchen. So in in the weeks to come, I'm very interested to see what more we find out about the relationship between Camille and Adora. I'm also interested to find out more about Emma and her relationship to the gr two girls who have been murdered. Because that's how the episode ends. Cam Camille finds out that Emma was very good friends with Natalie and Anne, and she did not know that. And it scares her, and it and it stuns her. And she's going in search of Emma, and I think she has serious suspicions and questions about Emma's involvement in the deaths of these two girls. So I'm interested in that, interested in that relationship, and of course interested in Camille, in Camille's continual grappling with her childhood, with the trauma of the past, and with memory. And so we'll see how all of that goes. So I'll stop here. Thanks so much for listening to this Sharp Objects Recap episode. Bye for now. <laughs>